0: Asalaamu Alaikum. Welcome back to Islamic History Exclusive. This is the podcast for Patreon subscribers and supporters of the Islamic History Podcast. In this series, we are going over the life of Prophet Muhammad, sallallahu alayhi wa And we are now on Sirah episode number 26. In the last episode, we discussed the Prophets and the Muslims' preparations for the Battle of Al-Khandaq, the Battle of the Trench. And we discussed some of the specifics of the building of the trench. And now we're going to go into the actual battle itself. We had mentioned how the two primary Arab tribes who were forming up to fight against the Prophet were, the, of course, the pagan Quraysh of Mecca, and also the Ghatafan tribe. And the Muslims had had some dealings with the Ghatafan uh, in the past. But there are there are also several smaller tribes and clans that had allied themselves with the Quraysh or the Ghatafan, or they saw an opportunity to perhaps come out good. They noticed this huge army heading towards Medina, and they figured everyone pretty much expected the Quraysh and the Ghatafan, or the Confederates, uh, to win. And so many... Of this of the smaller tribes along the way joined along with them. There was Banu Mustalik who was, which was a branch of the Khuzaa tribe, the Khuza'a tribe, and if it sounds familiar, if you are um, a regular listener of the Islamic History podcast, then you will know that the um, Banu al-Mustalik was later attacked by the Prophet sallallahu alaihi and the Muslims during the battle. Um, the Battle of Badr, Mustalik, but it's during the episode where we talked about the ifk, the slander against Aisha, the wife of the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam. And then there's also another tribe that joined along with them was the Banu Hun, which was a branch of the Khuzaima tribe. Banu Hun was, well, the Khuzaima tribe was. Um, there were certain branches of the Khuzaima tribe that had betrayed the Prophet um, during the. Um, and the expedition of al when the Prophet sent teachers out to teach some of the pagans and they betrayed them and killed the uh, companions who the Prophet had sent out to teach them. and There were also several other smaller tribes from the coastal plains of Arabia that tagged along and decided to take part in the battle as well. And so now the time for battle is about on the Muslims. The uh, Most of the 10,000 man army, most of the com- pagan confederates had arrived at Medina and the trench is completed now, and so all the Muslims can do is line up and prepare for battle and try to prevent the pagans from breaching the trench. So the Muslim fighting force consisted of about 3,000 soldiers, and they lined up in preparation for battle by a hill in uh, central medina called Silah and the prophet was them was with them also they lined up basically behind the trench with a trench between the muslims and the uh, confederate armies the women and children of medina they were placed inside various fortresses throughout medina so you understand a little bit about these fortresses before the prophet arrived understand that medina was really a small village with a bunch of Um, scattered hamlets throughout the area. Scattered hamlets are like small houses here and there. Not really a true city or anything like that. But when the Muslims and the Muhajirun and the Prophet arrived, and now they're trying to build a real community, the Prophet and the Muslims, the Prophet ordered ordered this most likely, they began building fortresses throughout Medina, uh, truly armored and fortified homes throughout Medina, as a means of protection, and there were about 200 of these fortresses throughout Medina. Now, they probably weren't very big, but still, they were fortified and armored homes that were stronger than just the little hamlets, which were probably um, during the time of, uh, of Yathrib before the prophet came, which were probably just cloth or bare mud brick homes that would have been easily destroyed by any sort of army. So now the Muslims had these fortresses and they put the women and children inside of these fortresses for protection. So as the battle uh, began to really get underway, so to speak, it wasn't really a fighting battle as you'll see in a few moments. As the battle began to get underway, the Prophet considered different alternatives he had to try to break this federation, to try to break up these allies and get the uh, someone to split off and peel off from, the, from his enemies. And he considered bribing the Ghatafan, the Ghatafan tribe, and he considered bribing them and getting them to break off the alliance that they had with the Quraysh. And so the Prophet actually began negotiating with the Ghatafan, and he had gone so far as to offer them a third of Medina's date crops if the Ghatafan broke off from the siege and returned home. And the talks were going back and forth between the two sides, between the Muslims and the Ghatafan. They were going... Back and forth, but basically both sides jockeying and maneuvering for position, trying to see how much they can get from the other person. And it finally got to the point where an agreement had been drawn up, but it was never signed. So this agreement uh, between the Muslims and the and the fan tribe had been drawn up, and they had. A, basically written down, but it was never signed by either party, and it was, wasn't witnessed by anyone either. So it was just a, an agreement in writing, but until someone actually signs it, it doesn't actually go into effect. Before he actually signed it, the Prophet went to get to the advice of the two Sa'ads. We, men- we mentioned them in the last episode, Sa'ad ibn Mu'adh and Sa'ad ibn Ubaidah, both from the uh, Ansars the Prophet went to them to ask their advice on whether he should accept this agreement with the Khotafan or not. When the two Sa'ads heard the Prophet's um, explanation of the agreement, they asked him if this decision was from Allah, meaning if this was revelation, or if this was the Prophet's own strategy, this was something he was thinking up on his own, or was he just doing this, or was, did he feel pressured to do this to help the Ansars, to help the people of Medina? And the Prophet replied basically that he was doing it for the Ansars because the Ansars, it was their homes, and they stood to lose the most that was under siege. The Ansars were the one, the vast majority of the Muslims at this time were made up of the Ansars. The Muhajirun only made up about 200 or so, but we have 3,000 Muslims here. He has mentioned 3,000 Muslim soldiers, and on 200 Muhajirun came with Prophet Muhammad ﷺ, and there are a few people who are neither party, like um, like Salman al fadisi even though the prophet considered him a muhajirun. But still, there are many people who are neither from Medina nor from Mecca. But so essentially, the Ansars had the most to lose. It was their home. It was their lives. It was their property, their dates that the prophet was bargaining off. So the Ansars had a lot to lose. And so Saad ibn Muadh he asked once he once the Prophet responded that he was doing this to try to protect and limit the damage to the Ansar. Saad ibn Muadh replied that before Islam came, they would have never <laughs> given away their crops and their properties to the Rtafan unless they had invited them to dinner or or something like that, and they were just giving them a, a few gifts. They said they would never give it away before Islam. And so now that Islam has came to the Ansars and it has shown them the right way and it has united them and made them better people, there's no way they're going to now give away their crops now. They're better than they were before. They were pagans before. The Ansars were pagans before. They're not going to now that they are Muslim, give away their crops. And so he rejected the idea or turned down the idea from Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. And so... Sa'ad erased the terms of the agreement, and he basically said, no, they're going to stay there by the Prophet's side, they're going to fight, and they're going to let Allah be the judge between the Muslims and the pagans. And so, the siege of Medina got underway. The Quraysh could not get across that trench. Uh, They were shocked, and they were stumped when they got to the trench, and there's remarks that some of them said, this was not the Arab way to fight. This was basically trying to condescend on the prophet's strategy, strategy uh, saying that this was some sort of a, maybe a cowardly ploy by the prophet and the Muslims, but nonetheless, it protected the Muslims. That's for darn sure. And this siege on Medina lasted almost a month. During this period of time, of course, the Quraysh—they were on the on the other side of the trench—and they could and they did receive reinforcements and replenishments of their supplies while they were trying to find a way across the trench, while they're trying to starve the Muslims out. Whereas the Muslims were stuck in Medina, they couldn't do anything. And the Muslims were in a very difficult situation. We mentioned how, first of all, it was Ramadan. Secondly, they were um, low on food. Well, obviously Ramadan ended. At, uh, at some point in time during the battle, during this month-long siege. But still, they were already low on food because they couldn't leave Medina for a long time. Their caravans hadn't been able to leave for a long time. On top of that, we mentioned a few episodes how there was already um, a drought underway, and this was still carrying on till now. So the Muslims were, were suffering quite a bit uh, under this siege. Now, even though the Quraysh, the vast majority of them, could not cross the trench, they were able to shoot arrows over the trench and hit some of the closer areas of Medina. Some of the arrows went into the Muslim ranks, but others actually flew over the the, the soldiers' heads and into the city itself. And so this made going outside of the fortresses, mentioned all the fortresses earlier, this made going outside the fortresses very dangerous. And so the Muslims pretty much had to stay inside their fortresses in order not to get shot by some random arrow from the Confederates. And sure enough, Sa'ad ibn Mu'adh, one of the Sa'ads we mentioned earlier, he was from the Owls tribe. He happened to be outside while the pagans were shooting arrows into Medina. And there he was wearing armor, armor, but there was a portion of his body, his arms basically, that was not covered in armor. And he got struck by an arrow in what's known as the median cubital vein. And this is the vein that is often used to draw blood in our time. And so now Sa'ad ibn Mu'adh, one of the chiefs of the Aus, of the Ansars, was now Hit in this major vein by an arrow, and he slowly began to bleed out. Once again, this is the seventh century. There really, there really wasn't too much the Muslims could do about it at that time. I guess they didn't. If they knew about tourniquets, maybe they didn't just have the abilities to do so, or whatever. But the point of the matter is, Saad ibn Muadh began to slowly bleed out, and it became evident that death was going to come to him soon. And so, after he got shot like this, he made dua and asking, asking Allah that Allah would allow him to live long enough to get revenge on Banu Quraida. Banu Quraida, once again, was a Jewish tribe within Medina that had betrayed the Muslims. And that dua, that request by Sa'ad Ibn Mu'adh, is going to become very pivotal soon very pivotal anyway the muslims of course they did shoot arrows back across the trench at the um, at the uh, pagan confederate tribes but muslims were small in number in comparison and i'm not aware of uh, how much damage they actually did to the pagans all in all the muslims of medina the city itself was basically engulfed in fear and anxiety. They were pretty much surrounded by this huge army of people who wanted to essentially wipe them out. And they were also afraid that Banu Qurayza, who was actually still within Medina, might at any moment rush out and attack them. And then on top of that, you got the hypocrites mocking the Muslims. We mentioned early we mentioned that earlier, but in the previous episode how Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam he, uh, the miracles when he was breaking the rock and he saw visions of per of the palaces of Persia and Syria and Yemen. And the news of this, of course, spread throughout Medina. The pagans, I'm sorry, not the pagans, the hypocrites began to mock the Muslims, stating that here they were listening to the, getting um, hyped up about the prophets' promises of palaces and stuff, and they couldn't even walk out their own homes. They were too afraid of walking out from their homes. And on top of all this, all these problems being surrounded by enemies, afraid of Banu Kureida within their midst, trying to attack them, the hypocrites mocking them. On top of all this, the Muslims were still suffering from hunger, and it was also cold. Now, there were some of the Confederates who were able to cross the trench. There were some of the pagan horsemen who were able to uh, get across and, and briefly breach the trench, but it didn't last very long. Several riders from the Banu Kinana tribe, they found a, a narrow area. They were able to gallop their horses across this narrow strip of the trench. But when they came out on the other side, they were met by Ali ibn Abi Talib and a group of Muslim soldiers. And so the pagans on the pagan horsemen, they reared up their horses and came to a stop and they challenged the Muslims to single to single combat. This is a thing that they used to do back then. And they did it even um, I guess until the invention or the um yeah, the invention of firearms, and that this became really impractical. It wasn't just the Muslims who did this or the Arabs who did this. Many other people across the world did the same sort of thing. They would have, the, before the, when the two armies would line up, and we spoke about this a lot, I believe, in the second episode of the Islamic History Podcast, when two armies would line up before the two, the, the major force of battle actually got underway, before the two main bodies started fighting each other, they would have, their best champions come out and duel each other with swords. And this is a way to try to maybe demoralize one group and hype up the other. And this is what the pagans were doing now. They had the horsemen, and they probably could have just charged into the Muslims, giving them a pretty good fight. But instead, they reared up and they said they challenged the Muslims to individual combat. And Ali ibn Abi Talib, being the excellent swordsman he was, and the rather brave person, Ali ibn Abi Talib was... I can't compare his faith to the other Muslims or the other um, companions, you know, that's not really the appropriate thing to do. But just reading his history, you can definitely tell his love of the messenger just coming through and everything he did. Anyway, Ali ibn Abi Talib, he accepted the challenge, and so the pagan captain, the one who had led all these guys across the trench in the first place, he saw Ali, and Ali was pretty young, by the way. Um, remember, i uh, can got to do some math real quick, and I shouldn't do math while I'm doing a podcast, but remember, um, Ali ibn Abi Talib was, was about nine years old when the message came to Prophet Muhammad, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. and so at uh, 13 years of that in Mecca, and now fifth year here, so that's, what, 18 years, so... 18 plus 9, um, 27. So Ali ibn Abi Talib was probably only in his mid to late 20s. So a fairly relatively young man. And so when the captain who uh, who led the pagan horsemen across the trench saw Ali, how young he was, I, I don't really want to fight you, dude. And he said, I don't want to fight you. I don't want to kill you. And Ali said, well, I want to kill you. That's kind of person he was, Ali was committed, but anyway, Ali was like, "I want to kill you." and so the captain said, said something like, "Oh, this is your funeral." So he got down, hobbled his horse. this is uh, hobbling the horse uh, they <clears throat> a couple of ways to hobble, hobble a horse, most likely they just take their um, like uh, the, the black thing that um, you see on some Arabs that they go around their headdress. I forgot I can't, think, I can't remember the Arabic word right now, or some sort of string to tie the horses legs so he doesn't run off or anything like that this is also a symbol saying that we're going to fight until the death we know you know there's no running away. i'm not going to hop on my horse and and flee if i see myself losing this is supposed to be a sign of courage and bravery so the captain he got down he hobbled his horse and he rushed at ali in the two fought. but eventually ali won and struck the captain down when the other uh, pagan horsemen, when they saw this, they turned around and fled. And as they were fly, fleeing, getting, trying to get back across the trench, the Muslims started shooting arrows at them. And one of them, one of them struck one of the pagans, one of the pagan horsemen. He fell off his horse and down into the ditch, into the trench, I should say. And now he was stuck there. So the Muslims, who were still standing up from the trench, who were still um, um, on the on the top of the trench, they started throwing rocks down at this guy who had just been. <laughs> shot off his horse down into the bottom of the trench and so the man who had been the pagan who was down there basically getting stoned to death he called out um not to let him die not to kill him like this this was a i can i can kind of see his point death is death but this is a a bit of a insulting way to die to be killed by being pelted by rocks is an insulting way to die and so um, he preferred to die honorably by you know, by sword, and so Ali obliged him. Ali got down into the trench, took a sword, finished him off with one strike. So in one quick rush, Ali took out two men by himself. Well, not by himself, the guy was shot. There's another episode story of bravery, and this is actually from a woman, from one of the Sahabiyat. Her name was Safiya bint Abdul Muttalib, and she was uh, inside one of the fortresses with the other women and children, and along with her was Hassan ibn Thabit. Hassan ibn Thabit was an Ansar. He was one of the um, companions of Prophet Muhammad sallallahu Alaihi He was very brave, but he was an older man. Now, Sophia, she was inside the fortress with um, Hassan, and she noticed what she suspected was a Jewish man snooping around the fortress. She noticed this man was from Banu Quraida and he was lurking around the fortress and she began to be concerned that he was trying to find some sort of weakness to attack the Muslims in the fortress. And so she leaned over and told, encouraged Hasid ibn Thabit to go out there and kill the spy. But Hasid ibn Thabit, he was an older man and he was also a poet. He was like, "Eh, that's not my sort of thing. So I don't want to cast aspersions against um, a companion. Hassan ibn Thabit, he was a companion, but he wasn't a fortress with the women and the children. And he was a poet. So let's just say fighting wasn't his thing. He did compose some great poetry for the Prophet. From what I've, I've learned about him, the Prophet wa sallam, loved him. That should be enough for us. But he just wasn't the fighting type. Sophia, however, Sophia uh, bint Abdul Muttalib, she was a fighter. When she saw that Hassan ibn Thabit wasn't going to move, she took a club snuck out of the fortress snuck up behind the spy and beat him to death with the club yeah (laughs) okay she beat him to death with the club and then she went back into the fortress and she told hassan ibn thabit to go out and strip the man, take his, take his, um, this is one of the things that they did. You killed your enemy, you take his goods, his goods now become yours. And she told Hassan, go out there and take it. And was like, no, no, that's once again, I have no need of it. Basically, this just wasn't his thing. All right. He, it seemed to me as if he was kind of squeamish about getting up close and personal with these sort of things. But this is another one of the stories of bravery from, um, from the Battle of the Trench. All right, now we had mentioned how the Prophet was looking for a way to, to break the confederacy, to break the alliance between the pagans and the, uh, the Jews of, of uh, Banu Nadir and Banu Quraida. So he finally got his opportunity when one of the companions named Naim ibn Mas'ud, who was actually from the Khotafan tribe, one of the enemy tribes, but he had secretly converted to Islam, but his people didn't know that. And so he came to the Prophet to ask him, is there some way that he could help? So the Prophet um, instructed Naim to sow discord or to bring up uh, problems within the Confederates to try to break their alliance. And this is when the Prophet made his famous statement, war is deception. And so Naim ibn Mas'ud, he went to Banu Quraida. This was, once again, the Jewish tribe that was within Medina that had betrayed the Muslims. He went to them first, and he told them that if this thing didn't work out, if the Quraysh were not able to break the siege and get into um, and get into Medina, if the Quraysh and the Qutafan abandoned the war, then Banu Qurayda would be in some serious trouble, because their homes were in Medina. The pagans, the Quraysh, the Arabs—they can go back to Mecca wherever they came from, whereas Banu Qurayda they're going to be stuck right there in medina and have to deal with the prophet and the muslims on their own and they were in a greater danger than the um, pagans on the other side of that trench were so noaim ibn Masud he advised banu Quraida to to ask the Quraysh for hostages basically gain hostages from the Quraysh to uh, basically show their commitment to going the distance to prove that the Quraysh would not just abandon Banu Qurayza if things went wrong, and Banu Qurayza, they thought about it and they said, "You know, this guy makes sense. He's telling the truth here." And they said, "Yeah, that's a, that's a smart thing to do." So then, Nuayim, job was done with one. His job was done with one of the confederates. He went on to the next one, went to Abu Sufyan of the Quraysh, and he went and started talking with Abu Sufyan, and he told him that the um, Banu Quraida had abandoned the agreement. Now, right here, Noaim is lying. But still, like the Prophet said, war is deception. War is deception. So, Noaim told, uh, told uh, Abu Sufyan that the um, Jewish tribe of Banu Quraida had abandoned the agreement and had broken off the alliance. And he said that the, that the Banu Quraida, they had agreed to kidnap, uh, they had told the Prophet that they would kidnap some of the Quraishi nobles and bring them to the Muslims. And he told Abu Sufyan that if any of any members of Banu Quraida ask you for some of your nobles and hostages, you should refuse them. So you can already see where this is going. And then he went to his own people, uh, the Rotafan, Once again, Nuaim ibn Masud was from among the Ratafan, but they didn't know he had accepted Islam. He went to the Ratafan and told him, told them the same thing he had told Abu Sufyan, that. Banu Quraida is going to ask you for some hostages and they are secretly in alliance with the Muslims so you should refuse them. And so now, everybody is suspicious of each other. Banu Quraida, they're suspicious of the Quraysh and the Khotafan. The Quraysh and the Khotafan, the the they're suspicious of Banu Quraida. Well, the next morning, Abu Sufyan, he sent some soldiers to uh, Banu Quraida asking them to... Um, joined the battle, because once again, Banu Quraida was inside the fortresses within Medina. They were basically waiting for the pagans, for the Arabs to cross the trench, and then Banu Quraida was going to come out afterwards and, and hit, hit the Muslims from behind. But now Abu Sufyan, he had his suspicions of Banu Qureyda, so once again, he wanted to prove their loyalty, and he told Banu Quraida to come on out and join them in the battlefield. But it happened to be Saturday so Banu Qureyda said, well, this is Saturday, this is our Sabbath, and it's against our religion to fight on these days or to come out of our homes on these days. Furthermore, they continued, furthermore, we want you guys to provide us with some hostages. Banu Quraitha now demanded hostages from Abu Sufyan, the Quraysh, and the Khotafan. And this was exactly what Nu'aym ibn Masud had told Abu Sufyan and the Khotafan to beware of. Of course, the Arabs refused. They were now convinced that Nu'im was speaking the truth, and that Banu Quraida had um, had betrayed them and had, and had joined the Prophet's side. And also Banu Quraida, when the Quraish and the Khatafan refused, they were convinced that they were not going to go the distance and see this war through. And so now, with that, with just a little bit of talking, the alliance is pretty much broken. So. The alliance is now falling apart and Nuayim's deception had worked and with all these seeds of discord through the different parties, Allah now sent a strong windstorm into the region and this just wreaked havoc on the pagan tents. So it, remember, it already, we already mentioned how it was already cold, but now on top of that cold, add wind to it. If any of you have ever been to Chicago, it's called the windy city, very windy, And when it gets cold, that sucker bites, okay? That city can really be difficult to to withstand during its wintry winters or windy winters. Anyway, the point of the matter is the pagans, the Arab pagans at least, they were feeling very, very miserable right about now. By this time, the Prophet and the companions, they had gotten down into the trench, probably for protection against the wind. Uh, the Quraysh had not been able to come through. Uh, they had not been able to um, actually do anything. So, the Muslims were down inside the trench itself. We mentioned the trench about 15 feet wide, 15 feet high. And so, while it was the safest thing in the world, they did need protection from, the, um, from this cold wind that was now coming through, and the trench did provide that. So, The prophet, now, he asked for a volunteer, someone to volunteer and sneak over into the um, pagan Quraysh and Ghatafan tents and find out how the pagans were doing. But uh, he asked, but no one one volunteered. No one raised their hands to go over there. And this, of course, is a dangerous mission, but still no one volunteered. So when no one did volunteer, the prophet just ordered someone to do it. He ordered one of the companions named Hudayfa ibn Yaman. He ordered him to do it. Hudayfa. He obeyed the prophet, and so he got up and he snuck into the Quraysh camps and began to observe the situation and take mental notes. Let's see. And it was cold. It was miserable. The uh, everybody was suspicious of each other. The uh, Arabs didn't trust the Jews. The Jews didn't trust the Arabs, and it was not good in the Quraysh and the Hudayfa. Uh, camps the wind was blowing their pots and utensils all over the place their their tents were being blown out and across the desert and their fires that they made to try to keep warm the wind kept blowing that out also then they also they had been out here for almost a month now and they had lost a bunch of horses and camels to the cold and to fatigue and their morale was very very low because they felt that Banu Correda had betrayed them so Hudayfa was um, just observing all of these things, and finally he heard Abu Sufyan stand up and say, you know, this has gone on far enough. It's time to return home. And he ordered the, um, the Quraysh to break camp, and he ordered return back to Mecca, and the next day they decided to leave. And the Khotafan, they also followed suit. They decided to give this whole thing up, and they left as well. Well, Hudayfa. He reported this all back to the Prophet, sallallahu alaihi Obviously, these two groups left after he reported the information back to the Prophet. Anyway, uh, the Prophet and the Muslims um, overnight they stayed in the trench. But overnight, the next morning, they got up. Most of the uh, pagan camps had broke had left. The pagans were mostly gone, and the Muslims, seeing that the siege was over, they began to disarm, take off their armor, lay down their weapons. The battle was over and the Muslims had gotten through one of the most difficult periods in their existence to this time. So now the Prophet was taking off his armor and the battle was uh, pretty much over when Angel Jibril came to him and he reminded him that, why are you taking off your armor? The battle's not over. There's a little bit more fighting to do. He reminded the Prophet وسلم, of Banu Quraida. And so the Prophet, he stopped removing his armor, strapped it back on, and then he sent a message to all the Muslims in Medina. No one was to pray until they were in Banu Quraydah's territory. The Prophet led the army over to Banu Quraydah's territory, and what happened next wasn't good. At least not for Banu Quraydah. We'll pick that up in the next episode, inshallah. Until then, assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa